This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to this episode of the National Bureau of Asian Research's Asia Insight Podcast. I'm Doug Strube, Director of NBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy, and today I'll be having two separate conversations with experts on different aspects of Japan's digital transformation. First, I talk with Ulrike Shade, Professor of Japanese Business at the University of California, San Diego, Founding Director of the Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology, and a member of the Board of Advisors at the National Bureau of Asian Research. She's an expert on Japan's business system and political economy, and in recent years has authored a book on the business reinvention of Japan and another on Japan's digital transformation and political economy. We discuss the digital transformation taking place among Japanese businesses and industry. Following that, I speak with Daisuke Kowai, a research fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs who focuses on Indo-Pacific security, global governance, and critical and emerging technologies. We discuss the digital transformation policies and strategies the Japanese government is pursuing, as well as the related successes and remaining impediments. Hi, Ulrike. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. So we want to discuss Japan's digital transformation and all the interesting things that are going on there with a focus on the sort of business and industry side of the digital transformation there. To begin with, could you give an overview or a definition of what digital transformation is? Whoever you ask will have a different definition for it. In my work, I like to think about it as a disruption of both the hardware and software side of technologies that guide our industries and lives, right? And so on the hardware side, we are talking about 5G connectivity that will allow constant communication. We're talking about sensors and things like that for self, I guess we call them autonomous vehicles or autonomous systems, uh, which would include flying car and things like that. You know, also, of course, the huge increase in computing and storage powers that we have enjoyed over the past decade or so, which which is continuing into the future. Then on the software side, we get, of course, sort of the fuel for for these uh, engines. So we are talking about new ways of analyzing unstructured data like video. So we could we call that big data, right? And that's both sort of a, a scrubbing and then also an analysis of these unstructured data. We're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and um, a number of other things like blockchain and everything that in, in the United States ends on these uh, combo, new combo words of tech like like prop tech, which is real estate, insure tech, fintech, which is insurance and finance, and uh, so forth and so on. Uh, in Japan, by the way, all of this comes under the header DX, because digital transformation in Japanese katakana would be a very complicated word. And so not a day goes by in Japan without the newspapers writing about all of these disruptions, and it comes under the header of DX. You've written a lot about digital manufacturing being a key element of this and the concepts of Industry 4.0 and how the Internet of Things sort of fuels all that. 
Could you just talk a little more about Japan and specifically how some of these technologies are developing or what the key technologies are that Japan is really excelling in? We're currently at a point in time where all of this is kind of happening at once and it's happening very fast, but it's not necessarily clear that we know what exactly we're going to use all of this for. So the use cases for AI ML are still in the early stages. The one area where we already have a pretty good image of how this could be useful for us and 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 will change how we're doing things today is the manufacturing shop floor because that's a pretty confined space we know exactly what needs to be done and we know how the dx can help change the shop floor so uh, for instance currently there are robots of course there's some degree of automation on the shop floor already but it is not a unified system and there's still people guiding the robots and people doing things that the robots can't do today in the new digital manufacturing shop floor we know already that the machines and all the parts are all equipped with the ability to communicate with each other so we don't need people the machines can talk to each other the machines know where the parts are the parts can form into a digital twin of whatever it is that is being produced and uh, the whole process because there is this constant connectivity can be centrally governed by somebody sitting somewhere else entirely uh, in fact it's already the case that there are what's called dark factories dark factories are factories where no light is needed because there are no humans robots are doing the entire process and robots don't need light to do that so the factory can save energy by not turning the lights on even though there's a 24/7 uh, manufacturing of good currently this happens for cell phones and things like that we're we're not quite there yet for cars but that is of course the vision of the future that the car worker of the future is not going to actually make cars they are going to they they'll be needed but they'll be needed for a new job that is maybe about offering services while we're being transported in in a vehicle one key aspect that you focus on a lot is japan's manufacturing and broader competitive repositioning to better fill niche roles in the the manufacturing of a lot of these key technologies could you talk about that a little and how japanese manufacturing fits into all of this So we used to know Japan as a producer of consumer end products. Some 30 years ago, you would walk into anybody's living room and it's a Sony, right? And today you walk into people's living rooms and it's no longer a Sony. So many people think that that must mean that Japan has lost its previous powers. And to some extent that's true. So Japanese companies have indeed had to relinquish their former leading role in mass manufacturing consumer end products to first South Korea and then Taiwan and then China from a strategy perspective that's actually a good thing so getting out of the low margin parts of the global supply chains is a smart move of a leading technology nation 
So instead, what Japanese, what the leading Japanese companies have done is they have positioned upstream to make the much more difficult to make and difficult to imitate input materials and parts and also the production machinery. So for instance, if you look at cell phones, we all know that Apple is the market leader, followed by Samsung, and then maybe far away from China. But if you take any of those phones apart, you'll find that at least a third of the value added, which means sort of the expensive parts and the expensive polarizer films and brightness films and so forth, are actually made in Japan. And that's a good thing from a strategy perspective because that's where the money is. Uh, those parts are the expensive parts uh, of the of the iPhone. And the materials that go into the parts are the even more expensive parts of that cell phone. So the same logic applies to uh, manufacturing and the digital manufacturing in particular. As we move to a new world where the shop floor is governed by advanced mechatronics and and system solutions, there are two nations that stand out as taking the leadership in this, and those are Japan and Germany. And, and that's because they have had traditionally not only strong automobile industries, but together those two countries combined to something like two-thirds of the global market share of, of cars. Um, but but they, they've long been innovators, you know, at the at the production end. And so, for instance, German universities have now built Industry 4.0 uh, plans to experiment with how that would look like once we have 5G and all of that fully fully installed. Japanese auto manufacturers are currently still treading very carefully in terms of the adoption of these brand new technologies. They will use them today. They will use them only if it makes the work of the humans easier. But let's make no mistake, I mean, those leading car companies are experimenting with the car, the car shop floor of the future. And some of the advantages that these new machineries and these new production processes will bring is, uh, for example, uh, wiping out economies of scale. Robots can switch models on a dime once they're fully trained. And so this, the, the old notion that making a lot of pieces to reduce the cost per piece is probably going to go away. And if we look at who is experimenting with what that means for operations management, uh, you will find that the leaders are, are in Japan and, and Germany. That, let, let me add to that, that, of course, this is because the core competence already exists in Japan, for instance, on how to, the Toyota production system is, a, is one of the most important contributions of Japanese companies to Western management, right? And so an, a logical extension of this is for Toyota and other Japanese car companies to experiment with what does the Toyota production system of the future look like. You mentioned how people today tend to focus a lot more on say, China and maybe other countries and not look at Japan as much as a leading manufacturer of these innovative technologies as they used to. Can you talk a little about what drove these changes in Japan to get it to this point, how it sort of recovered its leading edge technological abilities? So at the at the risk of brushing over, uh, you know, some important parts of history, let me give you just the staccato version of, of how that happened. So many of us still remember the bubble economy when Japan was was aspiring to be 
the world's number one, and that almost happened, but it didn't happen, and then this whole house of cards collapsed, um, and it became clear that a lot of the stock market and real estate valuations were were indeed sort of an expression of a, of hubris and, and a bubble economy. That was followed in the late 1990s by a severe banking crisis and a depression. And then, if we are honest, uh, including myself, I'm a Japan researcher, but Japan became very boring. There was nothing to report from Japan. Interest rates were zero, and there was stagnation, and that was that, right? So the newspapers started talking about strange things that were happening in Japan, because on the economic side, there was very little to to write home about. So the era between the sort of the mid-1990s to even maybe today, is sometimes referred to as Japan's two or possibly three lost decades. I beg to differ. Those decades were not lost because while we were not looking, something very important has happened in Japan, and I call that the, the business reinvention of Japan. So at first, in the mid-1990s, everybody was busy with about the, the banking crisis and so forth, but that was the time when South Korea took over uh, leadership in the global semiconductor uh, industries. And then Taiwan followed suit. And it was also the time when China started to pop up. Suddenly there was an, a, a China that was signaling to the world that they were willing to you know, trade and interact and, and, and all of that. So it took Japanese companies quite a while to figure out what that actually meant for them. And in fact, there was also a very slow transition from analog like so the old camcorder or the old Walkman, right, to the new digital era. And um, some companies made significant strategy mistakes. But all told, overall, Japan's leading companies have used this time to move into making these very difficult-to-make fine chemicals for electronics or parts or production equipment that the companies in South Korea and Taiwan and China need to make what they're making. And so then that took like 20 to 30 years to, to kind of shift the Japanese companies from being these very large conglomerates that were like, like Hitachi, that were making everything from uh, toaster ovens to nuclear power plants, to much more focused, nimble competitor that is positioning to be a a, a leader in the design of smart cities and city tech. And, and, and that just takes a decade or two. I mean, that, that's just normal. It took IBM a, a decade to turn itself around, too. What we didn't really account for, the, the rest of the world looking, looking on this, what we didn't account for is that the products that we use on a daily basis usually don't come with a sticker that says Japan inside. Unlike maybe some computers that say Intel inside or something, but there's no such sticker that says Japan inside. But I would um, challenge you that not a day goes by where you're using at least one product, if not more than 10, that would not function in the way they do without a Japanese input part. And so Japan's new leadership in this area is very quiet. It's not in your face. There's no... There's not really a, a brand attached to your cell phone or a sticker that says, you know, the reason you can look at the screen in the sun is because of a Japanese chemical company. But, but that is the reality. And so 
way I think about this is for Japanese companies to have chosen to be these input material leaders. So they've, they've undergone a choose and focus repositioning and they're now occupying a large and growing number of input products that each of these is small with maybe about a $5 billion global market size. And if, but if you have 50% or more global market share, that's 2.5 billion annual sales. And if you have 10 of those, it's no longer small. So in the aggregate, these input materials and products add up to a powerful trading position certainly in the Northeast Asian supply chains. And so I've called that the aggregate niche strategy because each of these products may be a niche, like um, photonics for semiconductor uh, production, photoresist, things like that, or the polarizer film in the screen that you're looking at, you know, at your computer. Those are not particularly large global markets, but if you occupy several of them in the aggregate, it makes you a very powerful competitor. So Japan's clearly, from what you're saying, established itself as a key producer of critical technologies or critical inputs to most modern high-tech technologies. But how is this playing out in terms of domestic digital transformation? Is this translating to the embrace of digital transformation in Japan? Are they also emerging as a leader in that aspect, or is it still more of just supplying the inputs for these technologies? That depends on how you're looking at the digital transformation. So, and it's, it's part of the reason why I like to separate the DX disruption into hardware and software. So if we look at the hardware side, then clearly Japan together with Germany is in a leading position, partially because of these aggregate niches. Um, and even where Japanese companies don't make the actual thing, they make the part that goes into the actual thing. And that, by the way, includes the infrastructure for 5G and um, other infrastructures for, you know, sort of digital, you know, so smart city installations, flying cars, that sort of thing. So the leading flying cars companies right now are actually in, in Japan. And then on the software side, some people have doubts that Japan will be able to compete. And that could be true. I mean, we don't know how exactly that plays out, right? Will will the, today's leaders uh, continue their leadership, or can they be leapfrogged? So they spent all the money on developing all of this, and then uh, companies elsewhere can just basically take this and say, oh, "Thank you kindly for your good basic research," and now we can actually use this. So we don't know what the future brings. Right now, there's a lot of doubt, or you know, sort of, if not cynicism, that Japan cannot compete on the software end. But to those doubters, I will just say that it is true that nobody can run trains on time just like uh, Japan can. And that's that's a software thing. Right? So to dismiss Japan for, you know, not having a, a, an, an Alphabet or an Amazon, which was actually do with Rakuten, uh, would be a little bit too simplistic. And we will have to wait whether uh, Japanese companies will be at the cutting edge on the software side as well. I also wanted to ask, looking more broadly beyond manufacturing and use of these technologies in an industrial capacity, Ideas such as Japan's Society 5.0 as more effectively bringing 
the digital transformation to citizens in general. Is this digital transformation taking place outside of the factory as well in Japan? The government of Japan has coined the Society 5.0 concept, which was actually following the the German uh, trade association lobbying for Industry 4.0, and so Japan had to just one up on that. Um, and there are two aspects to this concept of Society 5.0. One is the government trying to make people understand that they will not be left out, that that there is a societal aspect to this that the government takes very seriously. This go, this starts with privacy and ends with, you know, making uh, using city tech to make city life better and that there's a human element in this policy rollout. Uh, basically to just calm people down and say, don't don't you worry, we'll we'll take care of you. It's a very strategic political calculation to say, don't 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 worry, just trust us on this one. But at the same time, it has also opened up a new line of business. And that for Japan is important because of what I like to think of as Japan's lucky moment. And the lucky moment is that for Japan, the DX and all of these technological disruptions are happening at the same time as demographic change is hitting the country in a serious manner. I mean, but demographic change is quite foreseeable. We know it's going to happen. We can look at the population pyramid and we know what it looks like. And for Japan, we know it is happening now. Labor shortage has already begun and is very serious. The aging population is also a shrinking population. We know that as well. So unless something dramatical will happen on immigration policies, Japan's population will be shrinking, right? And this is happening just when we're getting these new technologies, for instance, of the dark factories where no people are needed to make a car or a phone or a computer. And so that takes the threat of the DX away because nobody is replaced by this because demographic change is also a threat, right? It's a threat to, to labor productivity and we don't have enough workers and how is the bus taking us from the airport into downtown Tokyo, well, it'll be a self-driving bus, no problem. And because nobody is replaced because of the labor shortage, this is so much more acceptable. So a minus and a minus may actually become a plus if Japan can seize this lucky moment. But it's there on a silver platter. So so Japanese government and, and companies are now looking at this and saying, how can we use this co confluence or coincidence of the DX and, and the real you know, impact of demographic change to create Society 5.0, which is a whole new version of the post-industrial, post-growth society. So Japanese officials, especially recently, have been quite open about the fact that the government's shift towards digitalization has been slow and maybe lagging behind other advanced economies. Why do you think there's this contrast between the business community making these advances and the government having a slower approach to technology and digitalization? Yes, first, uh, thank you for the opportunity to point out that I'm talking about Japan's best companies. And that may be a fairly small number. Maybe there are 500 of those or maybe a thousand. And they are so good that they are leading this business reinvention. 
there are a lot of Japanese companies that are way behind and, in fact, still run, you know, international purchase orders on Excel sheets that are emailed around the country, right? And so uh, Japan, uh, there, there are lots of companies in Japan that are very much behind. And the government, too, has been slow to shift to true, you know, sort of in the cloud e-government. And part of it is a concern about the safety of putting everything up in the cloud, and that's not entirely unfounded, right? We're having a lot of hacking incidents uh, in the U.S., and Japan is a place where I like to label it Anzen Daiichi, which is safety number one. And it's almost like a national motto. You can't roll out something until it is 100% safe. And, And this is a problem because it slows everything down. But it also has some benefits, right? So the government is very slow and um, and hesitant in putting private information and government information into the cloud without being sure that they have the cybersecurity means to protect that information. So you could argue with that, you know, on both sides, I think. Um, and the United States is just very different. We, we put it up and then we deal with the fallout. Japan says, oh, no, no, we cannot have a fallout. So before we put it up, we have to actually figure out what we do in the case you know, there is something bad happening. But that's changing. I mean, everybody is understanding that things are changing, that, you know, we have to replace the hanko with an electronic signature. And this is happening, right? And we have to rely less on the fax machine. By the way, there are parts of U.S. government that still use the fax machine, so the reliance on U.S. fax machine is by no way singular to Japan, right? It's just the extent to which the fax machine is still there and everything has to be printed out and that sort of thing. So I think that's just a matter of degrees um, and um, a certain sort of risk averseness to launching a technology without fully understanding how you would solve a problem when it arises. And you could say, well, when is slow too slow? Right? Is, does this cause a risk for Japan to fall behind? And, and the answer is, yeah, maybe it's too slow. On the other hand, I, I think Japan's saving a lot of not, not only hardship and trouble, but also money by uh, having important documents in secure places that cannot easily be hacked. So I don't know what the calculation is, but it would actually be very interesting to figure this out. As it stands, Japan looks a little bit behind. Who knows? Uh, As I said earlier, I mean, maybe there's a way to leapfrog, right? So once the U.S. has figured out how to do this, I wouldn't be surprised if Japan were to adopt it the following day. So just to wrap up, I'm curious what you think of how Japan's approach, this aggregate niche strategy, is impacting the rest of the world. This has clearly embedded them in key points in global supply chains. So how is it impacting Japan's role in global trade and commerce and manufacturing? And how do these developments impact global competitors? So I think there are two aspects to this. The first is that it has created dependencies Right? So Japan makes certain stages of the semiconductor production process or the cell phone production process that nobody else can make. Right? So the world is actually dependent on Japan. Nobody likes to be dependent on something. So, so resource dependence is a, a decade-old 
concept and business strategy can't have that, right? So um, in a way, this is actually pushing the technology frontier because companies in Korea and China and everywhere in the United States, Europe, are trying to not be dependent on Japan. So let's make that same thing. Well, let's make it better. Right? So it, it, it has given a huge competitive boost at the technology frontier. At the same time, and this is the second part, companies around the world are dependent on Japanese input parts. And that has allowed Japanese companies to shape the technology frontier by putting bets on certain technology rather than others and sort of pushing the DX frontier out into areas where they're particularly strong. So to as so as to increase these dependencies. And so there's a very interesting new competitive dynamic that is being created here by Japan's leadership position in these niches. And uh, it's also um, a little bit of a balancing point. I would make that my third point. It actually balances the power positions in Northeast Asia. Because if you look at business relations between Japanese companies and some of the leading companies in, uh, in, in the other Northeast Asian economies, you see that they have very good relationships and they collaborate, you know, happily. And uh, it's, it's about money. It's about trade. It's about having easy trade relations. So uh, this could be balancing some of the other you know, strains that, that might be occurring in the region. And so I think that's also possibly a very positive thing uh, that, that Northeast Asia has developed this sort of collaborative trade scheme. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and thank you so much for joining today. Thank you very much for having me. And now we'll move on to our conversation with Daisuke Kawai, where we talk about the Japanese government's digital transformation strategy and the latest policies it's been implementing to achieve its DX goals. Hi, Daisuke, and thank you for joining this episode. We're very excited to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. As we're going to be discussing Japan's digital transformation today, I'd like to just start by asking you, when the Japanese government talks about pursuing digital transformation and is putting forth strategies to achieve this, what does it mean by digital transformation and what are its goals in this area? So while there have been many digital initiatives over the years in Japan, this time around, in short, the government's uh, priorities are upgrading and uh, integrating its public service delivery system and uh, streamlining its administrative process, particularly at the local level in response to the bottleneck exposed by the pandemic. How successful has Japan been so far in its pursuit of digital transformation? It is really a question of uh, regionality. Thus, in the major urban centers such as Tokyo and Osaka, the digital transformation has been relatively successful. In the less populated and the outer prefectures, it has been slow rollout of new services. What are the main impediments that have prevented Japan's digital transformation from being carried out more quickly or more effectively? There are two main hurdles to this DX. The first 
has been the lack of uh, investment in newer systems, both in the public and the private sectors, and uh, this includes uh, education. Second is uh, public resistance to change and the privacy concerns. Japan's aging population means many older citizens are reluctant to adapt new ways of doing things, which also includes uh, bureaucracy. A good example of this is the continued use of the hanko or personal seal and more broadly across all demographics, Japanese people take their personal privacy very seriously. Can you elaborate on what the hanko is for people who may not be familiar with that term? So hanko is uh, something like a personal seal. So when you need to approve something, you have to use the kind of the, uh, the seal, which stands for so you approve the matters, and the, which is very old-fashioned. And uh, still many governments use the uh, I mean, Hanko system still now. Okay, so there's resistance to move away from that system. Yeah. Okay, so could you talk then about the current administration's policies and strategy for the digital transformation and what steps they're taking to advance these goals? Yeah, the, we see the establishment of uh, the digital agency under the Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga in 2021 as a major step forward. Also, through the appointment of uh, our newest digital minister, Talon Kono, we are seeing the cutting through of the stovepiped vertical administrations and improving efficiency through standardization and collaboration between national and the local government and the other systems. Can you talk a little more about what the digital agency actually does and what specific steps it's taken to advance the government's digital transformation goals? Yeah, the digital agency's most immediate goal has been to promote the spread of a my number card, which is a smart version of a Japanese social security identification card and uh, the paperless administration systems. So it's a very comprehensive I mean, measures that digital agency promotes for now to introduce the digitalization in all ministries in Japan. And how has that been going? Have people embraced the adoption of the my number card system? And how has this impacted society? Its initial rollout, uh, my number card system was uh, found to be poorly implemented in delivering services efficiently. Yet the digital minister Taro Kono has been remarkably active and uh, vocal and has achieved some relative success in uh, increasing the present penetration rate of uh, the My Number card to 70% of the population. But privacy concerns mean 70% is about the upper limit for the time being. So particularly amongst the foreigners living in Japan, since they are concerned about facing discrimination by having to use their real names rather than aliens. And what services does the My Number card provide citizens who register for it? Or what incentives do people have to sign up for this? 
So my number card allows people to pay something and issue the important documents. Let's say now, if you need to get certificate for residency in your county, you can use my number card to issue without going to your local council or local uh, authorities. So maybe just popping in the convenience store to you uh, with a uh, my number card to issue the, your certificate. Ultimately, it aims for multiple functions for any services. Another component of the government's strategy has been its launch of the Digital Garden City Nation initiative. Could you talk a little about what that is and what it's trying to achieve? So this is a major government policy um, with a total budget of 5.7 trillion yen, which is uh, equivalent to uh, 42 billion US dollars. And the Digital Garden City Nation Initiative, which is a little bit long name, but has been positioned by the Kishida uh, government as an important pillar of its growth strategy for realization of a new capitalism and the digital society with the aim of uh, solving the problems faced by local regions through digital implementations where no one is left behind and everyone can enjoy the benefits of a digitalization. Digital Garden City Nation Initiative is about using digital tools to improve rural life and revitalize the regions on the edge of the economy. The development of rural areas has been an issue since the Abe administration. Its goal is to create similar conveniences and uh, attractions as the urban areas while preserving the richness of each, each region through the power of digital technology. For example, in digital infrastructure, plans are underway to expand 5G networks to cover 19% of the population by 2023, since most digital infrastructure is uh, concentrated around Tokyo. More than a dozen regional data centers will be developed over the next five years. In addition, as part of the digital garden city superhighway, over the next three years, the government plans to complete a submarine cable along Japan's border in the Sea of Japan to provide the countries less developed and less populated Western regions access to high-speed fiber internet. Okay, so the, the Digital Garden City Superhighway is largely about improving connectivity on Japan's Western half where there's more rural population and less existing connectivity. Exactly. And you had also written about the Digital Garden City Nation Initiative Promotion Grant. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? So one of the pillars of the Digital Garden City Nation Initiative is the Digital Garden City Nation Initiative Promotion Grant, as you said. So the grant, which are given by the state to each local authority, are not one-time subsidies, but rather provide an annual budget to implement measures that suit the year's situation. Example of priority projects include the um, dissemination and the promotion of the My Number Card, utilization of uh, startups to support government services, 
and interregional cooperation on digitalization. What kind of impact has this initiative had so far, or is it still too new to really see the results yet? Although the Digital Garden City Nation Initiative is known to some businesses and uh, entrepreneurs who can receive grants, it is not yet widely known to the general public. However, the Japanese citizens who are aware of the initiative do have high expectations for promoting DX and moving it forward. So going forward, what are the main remaining barriers that the Japanese government will need to address to more comprehensively and effectively advance its digital transformation goals? As noted earlier, the long-standing culture, cultural resistance to digitalization among Japanese public remains a key challenge, including significant concern over linking personal information to the card. Many people also fear that government will have access to all their health information and assets if they connect their health insurance and bank accounts. On top of this, enhanced cybersecurity policies are also necessary to address concerns about information leaks and the sensitive information management by the government. So taken as a whole, the current policies and strategies being pursued by the Japanese government towards digital transformation, how effective do you think these are in addressing the challenges we just mentioned? Given these challenges, it will take a considerable time to promote digitalization in Japan. Yet the government's policies represent a broad approach that should help provide a sense of security and the comfort to the public with regards to the digitalization, so which would go some way toward advancing Japan's digital transformation. So are there any particular areas that you think these policies could be doing a better job of addressing or maybe areas that they're, that they're not addressing adequately? One area that certainly needs additional funding is uh, education. Uh, there will be an estimated shortfall of uh, 450,000 ICT workers by 2030. The new policy measures of issuing special work visas for foreign ICT workers, encouraging universities to um, new ICT-specific departments and mandate ICT skills in entrance exams and the compulsory programming classes for elementary and high school may not be sufficient to fill the skill gap without greater financial uh, incentives for ICT graduates to work in the government. Okay, so one last question, which you just kind of answered, but I just wanted to see if you might have any other recommendations that the government could implement to more effectively achieve their digital transformation goals? I would say the government needs to be mindful of and continue to engage in public dialogue and education about the benefits of digitalization and how it can help address the social problems that country faces. For me, personally, Japan's working practice that is very long hours and the salary weighted towards senior staff is probably 
the most significant challenge long term for Japan to train and boost the number of ICT personnel.、Um, there needs to be further improvement in work-life balance and the greater incentives for young Japanese ICT staff to work either in the government or domestic firms. So more investment in digital education, revision of salary structures, and、uh, particularly in government circle, they need to attract young workers by offering、uh, better working conditions. But having said that, what I see as likely happening is that as a younger and middle-aged generation begin to gain a greater share of voting power. And the elderly residents' attitude toward work, technology, privacy, and immigration slowly fade out over this decade. Will this will lead to Japan's digital transformation,、uh, gaining more public support, and the working practices being more in line with international norms? Well, thank you so much for joining today and sharing your insight on these issues. Thank you very much. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.